Well, not unlike generations past, uh, we live in, in dark times. About a month ago, a group of, of massacring terrorists called Boko Haram blitzed a village in northeast Nigeria, unloading scores of bullets, hurling dozens of, of firebombs on unsuspecting villagers. 86 people, men, women, and children were murdered in the massacre. Who can forget uh, the tragedy at, at, at Sandy Hook Elementary on uh, December 14, 2012? 28 people, mostly children, lost their lives that morning. I personally remember April 20th, 1999. I don't know if that sticks out for you. But uh, two students at, uh, at Columbine High School, near where I grew up, murdered 13 people and injured 24 others, mostly uh, their fellow students, before they committed suicide. I mean, and we could really add to the list. I mean, the Oklahoma City bombing, 9-11, Boston Marathon bombings, recently just in the last six months, terrorist attacks in Paris and in San Bernardino. I mean, it just goes on and on. These are just the incidents in the last two decades. And we could go on for hours just listing terrible event, tragedy after tragedy, year after year. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming how dark and dangerous and evil our world is. And these, these are really just the, the large-scale attacks, right? These are the high-profile attacks. We, I haven't said anything about murders just individual murders. I haven't said anything about assaults or frauds or schemes or conspiracies or oppressions that all happen on a daily basis in our communities, in our country, around the world. I mean, everywhere we turn, it looks like evil has gained the upper hand. Well, where's the hope in this world? And how long is it going to be like this? Who's going to rescue us from, from evil times? Well, praise God that the Bible has answers for us, right? The Bible has answers for us. God's word answers these questions in so many different places that it's really difficult to keep the list short. And when we look at what the Bible says about evil and sin and its downfall, we ultimately read that it's because of the victory that Christ has won through his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection. God's people win in the end because Jesus wins. Because the Lord Jesus Christ wins. For God's people, think about this, tears and sorrows and grief and pain and fear, absolutely non-existent when Jesus returns. Absolutely non-existent. That's the big picture that the Bible paints of, of Jesus overcoming the world. But what about when you're in the midst of it? What about when you're in the midst of crushing weight and, and adversity and tragedy that, that you encounter on a regular, regular basis? 
And if it's not you, if, if that's not going on in your life now, and you kind of had an easy life up to this point, how do you come alongside those who, who are in the midst of it? How do you come alongside those who, who have adversity, and their adversity has a name and a face? How do you help those people? How do we overcome? How do we cling to Christ when these times confront us on a daily basis? Well, David encounters this issue head on in Psalm 13. King David cries out in his adversity and in the face of his enemies. He cries out for deliverance. And as he cries out, David appeals to the faithfulness of God. That's his only way out. God in his righteousness and faithfulness is David's only hope. Before we, we join David in, in seeking God's deliverance from his enemies, let's, let's explore really a common difference for most of us between our prayers and, and the prayers in the Psalms. Many times our prayers benefit from, like, from a well-orbed, fully formed understanding of theology. So in other words, we have a whole Bible, right? Old Testament and New Testament. We, we have the whole thing. Because of this, when we approach the Psalms, we can tend to think, especially when they say some difficult things, we can tend to think that we can't pray what they pray. For example, theologically, we know that God is sovereign. We know that God is sovereign. We know nothing slides by him. In fact, we know that he ordains all things. We know this because his word tells us. So just consider Isaiah 46. This is the, in the context of God's promise to, to Israel that, that he's going to bring back. He's going to deliver the people from exile in Babylon. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. We hear that, and we embrace that. We love that. We want God to be sovereign. We want God to be in control. But if we falsely apply God's sovereignty, our prayers can be hindered. Instead of going to God with, with all of our trials, with our anxieties, casting them upon him because he cares for us, right? Philippians 4, 1 Peter 5. Our prayers and, and how we talk, instead of going to God, our, our prayers and, and how we talk about our cares and our anxieties come out as if we have it all figured out, as if we're the sovereign ones because we know God is sovereign. God definitely knows the end from the beginning, but sometimes we, we think we do too. Now, I'm not saying that, that we, shouldn't have a, 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 we shouldn't have precision in our, in our biblical theology, but we also shouldn't treat God like he's our, our heavenly professor, like he's our heavenly teacher instead of our heavenly father. So I encourage you, as, as we consider this psalm in Psalm 13, and as you read the psalms on your own, as you read, the Psalms are, are, are wonderful for, for devotions and, and especially family devotions. If you're reading this as a family, re reading these Psalms as a family, give your full attention to, to how and what the Psalmists say. And then think about 
how you can incorporate their manner of praying into your own, to be your own. And this is in part what the Psalms are for, right? They're for our instruction. They, they say wonderful things about God. But they're also for our instruction, instruction in conforming us to the image of Christ. And by including Psalm 13 in the Psalter, God has instructed us. And he is instructing us. And he will instruct us about trusting him and trusting him in adversity. So, so as we dive in, let's, let's frame up uh, Psalm 13, 13 this way. We'll outline it this way. Psalm 13 contains three instructive appeals to God's faithfulness in the midst of adversity. These are three instructive appeals to God's faithfulness in the midst of adversity. Number one, turn to God with longing. Look at, uh, if you're not there already, look at uh, uh, verse one. It's for the choir director, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Right away, these are, from these two verses, these are lament. This is a lament psalm. We are dealing with something that is, that is different from, from a praise psalm. There's a problem here. And, and these are dark days for David. So four times in these verses, David cries out, how long? How long, O Lord? And in verse 1, the, the, the first half of these laments appeals for God's concern from the angle of God's attention. He's trying to get God's attention. How long, O Lord, will you, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I mean, in, in parallel fashion, these questions cry out to God in the very moment of trouble. The picture, the picture is bleak. There are dark shadows all around David, and he is, he's left in distress. It seems like God's forgotten him. This is the very pit of despair. And to be in a state of mind where, where all your circumstances, all around you, everything is telling you you're alone. You are absolutely alone. Now, no, this isn't saying that God has actually forgotten David. I mean, this is from David's point of view. We, we are in David's shoes when he says this, how long, O oh Lord, have you forgotten me? From his point of view, it seems like God's forgotten him. And note that this isn't some sudden adversity that's fallen, on, fallen upon David. He, he didn't walk down the road and he stubbed his toe on, on, a, on, a, on a rock and then, how long, oh, how long? No, it's not that. This is sudden, or this is, this is not sudden at all. David asks if God will forget him forever. The dark clouds have been engulfing him for, for some time now. And from David's perspective, God's done nothing at all to help him. And that's the significance of this verb, uh, forget, the, the meaning behind, and it's also the meaning behind the, the parallel picture of God hiding his face from David, the, a commentator put it this way, for God to forget someone means that he does not come to their aid. For God to forget someone, that person's all alone. 
This means that David is crying out for God to remember him and to look upon him and act on his behalf. Only God can deliver him. And it seems like he's nowhere to be found. And this leads David to desperation in verse two. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? David's mind is, is racing a million miles an hour at this point. He's turning over the different scenarios, uh, the confrontations, the potential uh, outcomes of all of these things, and, and the outlook is bleak. He's thinking about what he can do to get out of this situation. What can he do to find peace? What can he say that will divert the coming onslaught? But he knows that no matter what he comes up with, his ideas are going to be unsuccessful. None of them will be successful. He's still going to be in the trial that he is drowning in. We know that he's in this frame of mind because he's looking inward for counsel. He's at the end of his ability to wait on God for deliverance. And, and that's the fascinating thing about this, this word counsel. So in the Psalms, wherever it's used in reference to the believer and in relation to the, to the counsel of the Lord, there's steadfastness. Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. There's also guidance. Psalm 73, 24, with your counsel, you will guide me. And there's delight in the counsel of the Lord. Your testimonies are also are my delight. They are my counselors. Psalm 119, 24. In a word, there's hope. When, when the counsel of the Lord is, is there, when you have the counsel of the Lord, you have hope. And that's what's missing from these first two verses. Hope. Instead of hope, there's, un, there's endless sorrow. There's unending grief. And isn't that... Isn't that our experience too? When the sun is shining, when our sight lines are clear and they're endless and the horizon is mile upon mile upon mile away, we know that there is steadfastness. We know that there is guidance. We know that there is delight in the counsel of the Lord. But when the darkness descends upon us, all we can see is trouble. All we can see is despair. And instead of looking to the Lord for help, we look inward. We try to get out of this, this mess ourselves. And if we think about our trials long enough, we understand that David, he's really speaking our language. We're speaking the same language when we're in the midst of adversity. Yet, notice that that David is now recounting, as we read it in the psalm, David's recounting this to God, right? He is looking to God in the midst of his adversity. He's not staying in the inward turmoil of his heart. He's appealing to God, longing for his help. He, he's coming out of it. Whatever pit he's in, he's coming out of it. And consider this too. For David, his trial's not only circumstantial. His adversity has a name and it has a face. 
While David's in the depths of the sorrow and the desperation of counseling himself, his enemy has been exalted over him. He says, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Finally, we're, we're getting a glimpse of what's going on in the background of this song, of this lament. We can't say exactly who this enemy is. We can't point to which person in David's life uh, in, in First or Second Samuel, which person in, 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 those, uh, in those books that he's talking about. But we can say that this enemy is, is one of the causes for David's grief, if not the cause. Whatever the per- particular circumstances are, David has his back against the wall. And his enemy is in a position of power and superiority over him. Everything looks utterly hopeless. And this hopelessness leads David to a second appeal. Turn to God with zeal. Turn to God with zeal. This is an intensified and zealous appeal because David rattles off three imperatives uh, in, in rapid succession, and he's begging God to come to his aid. Look at verse three. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. The first two of these three imperatives come at the beginning of verse three as David urges God to respond to him. He says, consider and answer me. Now, they're imperatives, they're commands, but nobody has the authority to, to command God to do anything. And, and that's the case here. David's not commanding God to do these things in, in the sense of where, where uh, David's putting himself over God in authority. David's not commanding God. He, David is beseeching. David is begging God to help him. David knows he is at the mercy of God, and his words reflect this. And just as David lamented God's apparent disregard in verses 1 and 2, David now calls on God, the covenant God, the God who promised to be with David and to be with his people always based on his gracious love and kindness. David calls on this God. With all of Israel's history in the background, he calls on him to look closely at his distress and to answer his pleas for help. And David continues his, uh, by urging God to revive him. He, he begs God with a third of these, these three rapid-fire imperatives, enlighten my eyes. Enlighten has to do with, with being relieved from trouble, being revived with physical strength and moral energy. A, a commentator, Alan Ross, put it this way, uh, talking about 1 Samuel 14. Uh, he helps us understand what David is really pleading for. The situation here with David is much like that recorded in the story of Jonathan, who was failing quickly in his vitality until he ate and his eyes were enlightened. When, when Israel is in the midst of, of war and, and Jonathan is, is in pursuit of, of enemies and he, he finds some honey and he, he partakes and, and lo and behold, he's got, some, he's got some strength that comes to him and and goes and finishes the job, and, and he's the hero. 
But for now, things are different for David. What will happen to David if God does not answer him? What fate awaits David if God does not look upon him with favor again? And the answer lies in what follows. If God doesn't respond to David and revive him, then he says, I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. In other words, if God doesn't revive him, then he's going to die and his enemies are going to party. They're going to gloat. They're going to exult. The word that's, that's connected to these clauses is the Hebrew word pen. It means at, uh, lest or, or otherwise. In other words, what follows David's plea for reviving their negative results, their, their negative purposes, do this or this will happen. And the first of these is due to death's imminence. Uh, it says, do this, God, or I will sleep the sleep of death. David fears that he will sleep. Now, we have to ask, why in the world would he be afraid of sleeping? Well, because it's not simply sleep that he's afraid of. He's, he's, not, he's not talking about sleep. David fears that he's going to die. This is sleep that is characterized by, it's, it results in death. And, and just thinking of, uh, across the spectrum of the Bible for a moment, were David to die, that would create major problems for Israel and for us. You don't have David, then you don't have Solomon. You don't have either one of those two, you don't have a Davidic line. And if you don't have a Davidic line, you don't have Jesus. This is a major problem if David dies. So David pleads for God to hear and answer and revive him lest he die. And he also pleads for God to revive him lest his enemy gloat, lest his foes exult. If, if David dies, then his enemy is going to say, I've overcome him. His adversaries are going to rejoice when he's shaken. David fears that, that should God refuse to come to his aid, that, that his enemies from the specific man that is before him, the, the, the name and the face that he has in mind in this, all the way to his opponents abroad. They're going to exult, rejoice in his downfall. They're going to raise their hands in triumph because David has been defeated. This is the, this is the picture of the royals winning the pennant in front of the home crowd, the winning run crosses the plate, and the stadium, the city, rejoices in exultation. And all the while, there are a few men in gray returning to their dugout. They sit in dejection because of their defeat. But th this is so much bigger than, than some, some baseball game, championship or not. No matter where you land on, when this psalm was written, whether it was still during Saul's reign or, or after he began his, his rule, David had many enemies throughout his life. And they all wanted to see him go down. He had enemies domestic and foreign. He had Saul. He had his own son, Absalom. He had the Philistines. All of them enemy, enemies. 
David had lines of men waiting at the door who wanted to be the guy to take him down. They wanted nothing more than to see the king of Israel lick the dust. David feared that specific enemy that he has in mind, that that enemy would have reason to declare victory and triumph over his death. And he feared that his extended group of foes would experience utter joy because he's shaken, because he's been shaken. This means that he, uh, David fears that their exaltation over his stumbling, over his downfall, over the fact that he's going to be in a grave. I mean, can you hear the desperation in David's words? I mean, even if at a distance, can you identify with, what, with David's position, with what he's saying? I mean, have you ever been so low that your words to God have sounded like David's? Where are you, God? Don't you see my plight? Don't you care that I'm being attacked? God, where are you? If you haven't been there, I'm sure it's coming. It's coming for all of us if you haven't been there. Trial and tragedy and despair, they're coming because we live in a sinful world among sinful people in sinful flesh. We, we need what, what David has for us here. We're going to be, if we haven't already, we're going to be where, da, where David is in this psalm. And if you have been there, do you go where David goes next? Do, do you go to where this, this third appeal goes? It begins in verse five. Do you turn to God with faith? I mean, just listen to it, the whole psalm again, starting in verse one. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I mean, there aren't many contrasts that are stronger than that. I mean, the, the, the change is striking and sudden, and, and it's as striking and sudden as the imperatives in verse 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Revive me or I'm going to die. I'm going to die, and my enemies are going to throw a party, and they're going to dance on my grave. But I have nowhere else to turn, and I want nowhere else to turn. I have trusted in your loving kindness. What are we reading here? We're reading the lowest valley that's short of Sheol to the heights that are only known to Mount Everest. And it happens in the Hebrew in one little letter. 
just one. This is where we must go when we are in the pit of despair. This is the, this is the instructive burden for, for this evening. This is exactly why we're here in Psalm 13, that when you're in the pit of despair, when you are in the midst of adversity, you will do what David does. You will learn from him and do what he does. We must follow David in faith as he leads us back to the truth, as he leads us back to the trustworthiness of God's character. So how? How does David do it? He does it by reflecting on the absolute faithfulness of God and recalling the commitment of God to his servant. First, this, this reflection, this recollection, it involves a declaration of security in God's previous character. David writes, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. This seems like a, just a sudden moment of clarity for David. D David looks on his situation as a whole from the, from the outside all of a sudden. He, he sees God's unrelenting covenant fidelity. And, and really, just talking about the grammar for a moment, this is exactly what's going on. All, all the way up to this point in verse 5, you have what, in, what we Hebrew scholars up in Expositor Seminary like to call the imperfect, okay? Actually, we're told what we should call it. It's the imperfect, okay? Basically, what that means is that you are, say you're in a, uh, around a parade. You are in the parade. You cannot see what's going on uh, a block down the way because you are in the parade. Everything is going on around you. Your perspective is limited. But the perfect... Imperfect, perfect. Where David goes here in verse 5, the perfect, it's like you're in the helicopter above the parade. You have perspective where you can see the whole thing. You can see the entire parade from start to finish. You have perspective. That's basically what's been going on for David is that he's been in the midst of, of, of the circumstances. He's been in the midst of the trial all, all he's been able to see is God's seemingly disinterested state in his circumstances. But, for now, but, but now, for whatever reason, he, he has clarity. He has perspective. All of a sudden, he remembers that God is trustworthy. He is trustworthy in his character. He, he is absolutely faithful to his covenant. He's absolutely faithful to his people. And in the same vein, he remembers his own trust in God and his loving kindness. In other words, this is, this is something that David has personally done. God, is, God has committed himself to, to his people. God is, has committed himself to, to David. David has committed himself to God. David knows that without the Lord, he actually is without hope. Only in the Lord is there hope even in the midst of devastating trials. And as a result of this new, newfound perspective, David declares his, his response to this reflection on God's commitment. It, it involves a vow. He vows to exult in God's future deliverance. He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Just as David feared his enemies rejoicing over his downfall, now David is on the rejoicing side. He will rejoice 
in, in God's salvation and in God's deliverance. And these are the same verbs in verses uh, 4 and 5. David's enemies will rejoice in verse 4. And now David says he's going to rejoice. It, it refers to enthusiastic praise. It, it, it means to, to shout exultingly, even to tremble with excitement, in the words of one commentator. These, these two could not be more opposite in their use. These enemies rejoiced that, that David was falling. He was, he was on the downside of his reign. But David rejoices in God. David rejoices in his work of salvation and deliverance. In other words, his enemies rejoice in, in the result of the conflict, but David rejoices in what he has suddenly come to know as his deliverance. He's still in the thick of it. He's not out of the woods yet, but, but because of his sudden change in perspective, he knows that his God will deliver him from his enemies. He knows it. And he vows to exult in this future deliverance. Now understand that David's not strictly speaking of a, of a, uh, of a spiritual salvation. Like, like salvation from sin. Remember, David's not in trouble for anything that he's done. As far as in his relationship with God in sinning. This isn't one of those situations. He's not in trouble as a direct result of his sin. David's speaking of a... Of a of a salvation that's deliverance from this specific conflict. This is a salvation that's physical because of his enemies. And this is also a salvation that's spiritual, but in a, in a different sense than, than salvation from sin or forgiveness of sin because, it, because of the effects on the inner life that it's had on his inner life that we saw earlier. So this is a this is David being confident that God will deliver him completely, absolutely. His enemies will be taken away, and his turmoil will be taken away. So he vows to exult in the future deliverance of God, and not only this, he, he pledges to resonate because of God's vindication. Psalm 13, it concludes this way. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Based on, on his sudden change in perspective and, and remembering the covenant faithfulness of God, David pledges to sing because of God's dealings with him. And this pledge is similar to, to other places where God's people sing to the Lord. Uh, for example, Exodus 15 on, on, the, uh, on the other side of the Red Sea. They sing, the people sing because of the deliverance that they have received from the Egyptians, out of, their, out of their hands, out of the bondage from the, from the Egyptians. And then Judges 5, there's deliverance from the Canaanites. They sing as a result of it. And they have in common uh, these, uh, a response of singing praises based on the saving acts of God. So you think about Exodus 15, Judges 5, and now Psalm 13. It's based on God saving acts. This is what David pledges to sing. He will sing because of the, of the deliverance and the vindication he will receive. In other words, not only will it not be him who is thrown down, but God will vindicate him by means of a recompense. Uh, that's the sense of de dealt bountifully. He, God is going to recompense him. God will pay back 
God will make restitution. Instead of disgrace and disaster, David will be blessed by God. And all of this is based on David's controlling perspective. David's controlling perspective for his life is that his God is a God who is for his people and saves his people. Over and over in the centuries prior to David's life, God proved himself faithful to his people. God consistently acts on behalf of his people. This is what David struggled with at the beginning of the psalm. Oh, Lord, will you forget me forever? But God is not a God who forgets his people. He always acts on, his, on their behalf because that's who he is and that's what he does. And this is nowhere, absolutely nowhere more evident than in the death and the resurrection of God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, of great David's greater son. God acted on behalf of his people by means of a once-for-all sacrifice of his son. And this is how we know. This is how we know that the dark times will not ultimately prevail. The dark times of evil and terror and uncertainty that we live in will not ultimately overtake us. Because of God's faithfulness is supremely demonstrated, manifested in the death and resurrection of our Lord. We can be confident that, that even though we will suffer, we will not be forgotten. We will never be alone because God is trustworthy, because God is faithful. Although David longed for God's concern and he zealously called for God's care, David reflected on who he was appealing to. He was appealing with faith. His God, whose character is defined by unfailing commitment, will not leave him, will not forsake him, will see him through the end, no matter what. He is absolutely faithful to his people. 